Welcome. For this podcast series, TBA 21 On Stage invited the non-profit agency for change, unless, to present the campaign, Speak Up for Antarctica Now. The project builds upon Antarctic Resolution, a collective research curated by Unless, which was published by Lars Muller Publishers and presented in multiple venues, including the 2021 Venice Biennale and the Museo Nacional Thyssen Bornemisza. Released on occasion of the 44th Antarctic Treaty Consultative Meeting, which will be held in Berlin from the 23rd of May to the 2nd of June 2022, the podcast presents a conversation between Julia Foscari, the founder of Unless, Alan D. Hemmings, Carlo Barbante, and James N. Barnes on the urgencies facing the Antarctic. What happens in Antarctica does not stay in Antarctica. This is a fact, and collectively we need to acknowledge it and act before it's too late. Antarctica is at once the largest repository of data on our climate history and the greatest menace to all our coastal settlements. Our own survival as humankind depends, to a large extent, on the scientific research conducted in the continent and on the effects of our changing climate on the continent itself. And we can influence both. Driven by this conviction, we invited three Antarctic experts, namely Alan Hemmings, Carlo Barbante and James Barnes, to develop with Unless a call to action to speak up for Antarctica now, i.e. to speak up for our only continent which has no indigenous people who can stand up for their rights, and to defend together intergenerational justice. The campaign ultimately aims to create awareness on the Antarctic and to collect petitions on three major Antarctic resolutions that are urgent. Our hope is that Speak Up for Antarctica Now will leap rapidly from being a campaign to transforming into a movement, one that can exert globally enough pressure and demand accountability on the future of our seventh continent and in turn of our only planet. So Alan, let's dive deeper together on understanding the role of our southernmost continent in our global ecosystem. As mentioned, research conducted in the Antarctic has been a major contributor to our collective understanding of the alarming trajectory of anthropogenic climate change. To reverse the trend that led us to witness unprecedented levels of CO2 emissions reaching 419 parts per million and meet the Paris Agreement targets of keeping the global temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, it was calculated that 60% of known hydrocarbons reserves must remain in the ground. Are Antarctic resources, believed to be plentiful due to geological association, actually included in global inventories? And are they accounted for in the sustainability goals set forth in international climate fora? No, they're not included. But if 60% of globally defined reserves have to stay in the ground, we surely cannot extract any hydrocarbons from Antarctica if we're to meet the Paris targets. As the Glasgow Climate Pact noted last year, the 2020s are a critical decade if we're to meet those targets. Now, the existing Antarctic mining ban under Article 7 of the Protocol on Environmental Protection to the Antarctic Treaty, what we call in shorthand the Madrid Protocol, is a general ban across all minerals. It was agreed in 1991, which is now 31 years ago, which uh, means it was agreed before we really accepted how serious climate change was. And accordingly, it's not focused on hydrocarbons as such. At the, the climate change convention meetings, the you know COPs that we hear about in the news, um, have not explicitly considered the Antarctic and the risks of adding Antarctic hydrocarbon extraction to the mix. Now, the next such meeting of what we call the COP is later this year in Egypt. 
So we have a bit of a gap in the in 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 the coverage of Antarctic hydrocarbons in these international fora. We need now to be focused on reducing hydrocarbon extraction and use globally. So extracting any Antarctic minerals would threaten the Antarctic environment, but extracting Antarctic hydrocarbons threatens the global environment. The 14th of January 2048 is a crucial date for securing the future of Antarctica and, in turn, of our planet, as it marks the day in which the Madrid Protocol turns 50 and the prohibition on mineral resource activities may be challenged by the decision-making Antarctic Treaty consultative parties. Do you foresee a realistic threat that the parties might indeed request a review of Article 7? If so, what consequences would it have on our southernmost continent and on the rest of the world? Well, I hope that post-2048 we don't see calls for a review of the Madrid Protocol and the Minerals Prohibition. But uh, anyone looking at contemporary global politics, I mean, take a look around Europe right now, can see that bad things and irrational acts can seemingly come out of nowhere. Resource interests are at the centre of Antarctic politics. They're a major reason for the ongoing territorial claims, and other states keep their resource options open. And there are indications that some states, most obviously Russia, uh, may already be prospecting, despite this supposedly being banned under Article 7 of the Madrid Protocol. Well, the prospect you just outlined is truly alarming. Yet historically, Antarctica has proven that multilateral cooperation between great powers can indeed occur even in times of war and political conflict. The signing of the Antarctic Treaty in 1959, in the midst of the Cold War, and the historic designation of Antarctica as a continent for peace and science, is a testament to that. Do you believe that there is a chance that the Antarctic spirit of cooperation could prevail once more, sending a strong signal of enhanced collective action in the face of our existential climate crises? To this end, what is the most urgent binding measure that should be enforced? Well, um, sadly, history doesn't guarantee the future. Um, if we want uh, collegial responses in the Antarctic, we have to reinvigorate the multilateral cooperation that we've historically seen in the Antarctic, not just assume it will continue. Now, I would have thought that a no-brainer contribution is to build on our common interest in reining in anthropogenic climate change. It is surely in the interest of every state and every person on our planet that we decarbonize the global economy. So the forever ban on Antarctic hydrocarbon extraction is a call to contribute to that. It is also symbolically a sort of demonstration that we can wind back hydrocarbon use. I mean, to put it bluntly, if we can't agree to forego what we haven't even started extracting, we seem unlikely to be able to reduce use of existing sources. Uh, critically, if we can do this, it would neutralize the risk of increasing nationalistic approaches to Antarctica. Now, you know, we know wars arise for many reasons, but war over resource access and control is one of the more familiar uh, bases for uh, states going to war, and we should surely avoid this in the Antarctic. Alan, as one of the world's leading experts on Antarctic geopolitics, what is, in your opinion, the most effective way to ensure the enforcement of a forever ban on Antarctic hydrocarbon extraction? What action could and should be taken now from concerned citizens to support the cause and put pressure on the Antarctic Treaty consultative parties attending the upcoming meeting on Antarctica in Berlin? Well, obviously, we need to get the agreement of the 29 decision-making states that are meeting in Berlin to begin 
a process, and that would continue through succeeding Antarctic Treaty consultative meetings over the next couple of years. The Antarctic system makes its decisions by consensus, so we need all of these decision-making states to uh, join in agreeing that this is necessary. And getting that means we need active promotion by sympathetic states, and particularly host Germany. And getting sympathetic states requires that those states know that their citizens care about this and expect them to act. So you can contribute to this by engaging with and supporting the Speak Up for Antarctica Now campaign in Berlin. The posters that you will see around the city, the online materials that are available, uh, public demonstrations, uh, media coverage, etc. Sign the petition. Ask your family, friends and workplace, school, college, colleagues to sign the petition too. The Antarctic needs you to care. All the big corporations will determine its future. Carlo, Alan just made an important point by saying that a forever ban on hydrocarbon extraction in Antarctica would not only be a strong signal as to the commitment to decarbonize the global economy and keep the Paris Agreement targets at reach, but it would also reduce the basis for geopolitical contention, enhancing the potential for international collaboration in what is unquestionably a global commons. As a scientist with first-hand experience working on the continent, How would you describe the level of scientific collaboration today? Are we as humanity maximizing the potential scientific collective output offered by our greatest planetary archive? Well, I think that banning hydrocarbon extraction in Antarctica is a great point for the future. Uh, We certainly need um, to enhance uh, uh, scientific collaboration, international scientific collaboration, although I must say that uh, there are different fora and the SCAR is, uh, is one of those in which international collaboration is, um, is well described and treated. Although I would say that sometimes the, uh, the, the international uh, research program are not synchronized. So I think that to have the possibility to have a broader view uh, to synchronize different national programs would be a great option for the future. There are a few places in which we, we do at the European level, for instance, there is a, a an important coordination and support action called EU PolarNet, where we are setting the scene uh, for future European uh, polar research program that take into account uh, all the stakeholder uh, and the national research program. That is certainly certainly the future. As you speak about collaborative environments, it strikes me as an architect that in Antarctica, except for Concordia Station, there are no international stations. As you know, within less, we produced the first ever archive of Antarctic architecture. And what became evident from a detailed analysis is that the deregulated proliferation of stations, often built in proximity to one another to conduct similar scientific research, ultimately reflects mostly a geopolitical strategy to overtly assert territorial claims through architecture. As a consequence, our contaminating footprint on the continent is expanding and the scientific potential is hindered. To put this in perspective, I think it is helpful to acknowledge that today, in average, only 13.5% of the station's surface areas are devoted to scientific laboratories, and only one out of nine of the station inhabitants are scientists. So, Carlo, what could we do to invert this trend in favor of science? Antarctic research and polar research in general is highly demanding in terms of logistics. So, 
I remember that the first time I went in Antarctica 30 years ago, we were aiming to have a 50-50 balance in between logistic and research. I think this is still quite far away uh, at international level. But anyway, uh, I think we have to try to invert this uh, this tendency. And, and the way which we can do is really to go through uh, international international research station where common and joint research program can be done together. I think we need more international station in the continent. Uh, actually, there is just one station, which is Italian-French Concordia station in the Antarctic Plateau. I think that we need to go in that direction to launch a petition to have more international station uh, coordinated for common objective and common goals. Uh, we have to remind that Antarctica doesn't have an indigenous population, but only no permanent uh, scientists, which pre-COVID reached about um, 4,300 people in summer. Uh, and I was one of those in, in last uh, last summer, being in um, Little Dom Sea Camp, and about 1,100 in winter. Therefore, since we don't have an, a permanent and resident population, it is all of us living in the other continents of the world who must speak up for Antarctica now and going on with this petition. Carlo, amongst us here, the only one who has the authority is a glac- as a glaciologist and as a coordinator of Beyond Epica to explain why the Antarctic is so important for the global ecosystem and why each and every one of us should feel the urgency of speaking up for Antarctica. Could you please share with us what information you're seeking to find within the depths of Antarctic ice and what conclusions can be derived from such collective research? Well, Antarctica is not just uh, 30 million of cubic kilometer of frozen water, but it's much more because in Antarctica we store the, the climate of the past, we store all the information about our continent since uh, the last few million years. So with, uh, for instance, Beyond Epica project, we are having to retrieve the information and the interplay between uh, CO2 and temperature over the last 1.5 million years, uh, showing the uh, the link in between between uh, forcing factors and the um, the effect of that, so that the temperature. Those are extremely important information because they allow to put us in the right perspective what is happening today. If you do look at the Epica record that went back in time about 800,000 years, we see that the CO2 always oscillating between uh, glacial and interglacial uh, climate uh, within a quite uh, regular um, up and down. But what is happening today is that we uh, have a concentration of CO2, which are about 40% higher of the highest concentration that we ever found in the 800,000 years. And uh, since we know that we have also some clues about uh, deeper and deeper time, about 2 million years ago, we can say that what is uh, what we are seeing today in the current CO2 concentration is unprecedented uh, in uh, in our climatic history. So that's really, there is an urgency to intervene, to reverse this trend. And that's the reason why this glacial archive is so important for we as scientists and for the humanity as a whole. It's at once fascinating and frightening to hear what you have to say, because it becomes evident that Antarctica, a continent that accounts approximately for 10% of the landmass of planet Earth, and which contains 70% of the freshwater of our planet and 90% of its ice, is at once the largest repository of scientific data of our climate history, which is essential to inform crucial environmental policies, and the greatest menace to global coastal settlements threatened by the rise in sea levels. Now, I believe most of us here 
will have read about the unprecedented rate at which the Antarctic ice sheet is melting. But could you please provide some data to assist us in truly understanding the threat posed by the current climate crises? Antarctica is melting quickly uh, in the last 20 years since we have a satellite observation, thanks to the GRACE experiment. Uh, just to give you an idea, something that we thought to be a, on a steady state until the 2000s now is melting um, at a speed of about uh, the equivalent of a, a cup, a 200, about 200 swimming pool uh, every minute. So uh, that is happening every minute. The velocity in which the, this is happening uh, worldwide is um, astonishing and is surprising we as scientists you have to think that um, until uh, more or less the, the the end of last century the sea level rise was uh, going on with the with a velocity of about um, uh, less than two millimeter per year and nowadays uh, in 2020 we have a, a velocity of about um, uh, 4.6 millimeter per year if you put in a perspective, in a future perspective, multiply this uh, 4.6 millimeter by 10, by 100, that is uh, something really scary for the future of our planet. The coastal region are certainly threatened by uh, future sea level rise. Uh, and uh, since we associate to that also an increased frequency of extreme events, that would have catastrophic consequences for uh, many of the coastal regions of our planet. James, we just understood from Carlo that the increase of global sea level rise induced by Antarctic ice thinning could effectively launch the largest migration ever witnessed by humanity from coastal settlements worldwide. Remaining focused on the ocean, I think we should also mention that the Southern Ocean, i.e. the vast body of water that revolves around Antarctica activating the global ocean current circulation, stores alone approximately 40% of the anthropogenic carbon dioxide produced since the beginning of industrialization, acting as the largest carbon sink of our planet. The immense service it does to our ecosystem, however, comes at the high cost of ocean acidification and biodiversity loss. Could you expand on what are the implications of such phenomena on Antarctic species? First of all, I'd just like to say the Southern Ocean, along with Antarctica, comprises 10% of the surface of the Earth. So it's a huge, huge area. And because of the way the ocean currents work, it takes nutrients all around the world. So it plays that very important role. And part of the reason it's such a carbon sink is because life forms, whether they're microscopic or larger or whatever, fall to the bottom and are essentially locked up uh, as carbon. They're in the bottom of that very cold ocean. Now, one of the worries about climate change that's coming uh, very quite quickly to Antarctica is that it's acidifying uh, some parts of that ocean structure. And what that means in part is, is that crustaceans and shelled creatures can't form proper carapaces and, and shells uh, in an increasingly uh, acidified body of water. So that's a real problem going forward. And then as far as biodiversity loss, well, climate change is already undoing some parts of the base of the food chain, such as krill, which every other creature almost in the whole structure from small creatures uh, all the way up to the great whales eat, eat krill. And the impact already on krill spawning grounds in certain areas is already being seen and, and recorded. So moving forward, if the world does not stop climate change soon, 
um, then the long-term implications for all, really all the species of the Antarctic are, are quite uh, grim, uh, as they are for many other parts of the world. The proposal of the United Nations Convention on Biodiversity to protect at least 30% of the planet by 2030, supported by the Global Ocean Alliance, which in turn pledges to ensure the protection of 30% of the global ocean in the same time frame, setting a target well beyond the status quo that sees only 6.4% of our global ocean protected, of which only 2.7% with a strong protection against harmful activities, can only ever be achieved if we establish marine protected areas. Could you please explain to us why the so-called MPAs are so important and how they are established? Well, in the Antarctic, you have a body, governments. It's got a long name, uh, one name I would like to forget some of the time, but it's called uh, the Convention on the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources. We call it CAMELAR for short. And the governments that are members of CAMELAR have the responsibility of managing all uh, activities in that ocean to protect the environment as much as possible and the species in it. And the key provision in the treaty is, which is called an ecosystem as a whole treaty, says that any decision to harvest fish or other uh, living resources like krill have to be based on an ecosystem as a whole approach. So you're not supposed to set a target limit that's not that's unrelated to what the impacts will be other creatures and on the ecosystem overall. Right now, and for the last 20 years, ASOC has been trying to motivate governments to create a network, a large network of large marine protected areas where fishing would not be allowed. And that's for several reasons. That's to have safe havens for species because we really don't know, even today, that much about the major species being fished which besides krill are Antarctic toothfish in particular. So creating marine protected areas where all fishing is uh, prohibited or where some maybe some scientific fishing is allowed, we see as a critical step to maintain safe haven for all these species that inhabit the Antarctic. Seals, penguins, whales, birds, little creatures, krill, all kinds of creatures. Since 2002, five marine protected areas have been proposed in the Antarctic, but only two have been established so far. One in, in the southern Orkney Islands in 2009 and one in the Ross Sea region in 2016. Could you please tell us about the three MPAs pending approval, their location, combined scale, and the reason for their delayed implementation? Pending for the last several years are large marine protected areas along the east coast of Antarctica, so they're called the East Antarctic MPAs. A big one in the Waddell Sea, and then uh, several uh, around the Antarctic Peninsula, which is a land that goes almost up to South America from the continent. And each of these uh, is large in and of itself. And if they were all three approved in their present form, that would be about 4 million square kilometers more protected in the Antarctic and would help us globally reach the 30 by 30 goal, as well as being very important for Antarctica. To put that in perspective, uh, 4 million square kilometers is uh, about the same as the size of the whole European Union. The main problem has been that fishing countries, um, and that especially Russia and China, have not wanted to close off their options for future fishing. And so they've been very resistant to declaring any new marine protected areas since the Ross Sea was uh, designated in 2016. 
So that's where we are right now. And on the table for decision this year uh, at the Kemalar meeting uh, in, the, uh, in October, November, uh, those three proposals are on the table and ready to be voted on. James, you have been an advocate for ocean protection for your whole life and have contributed greatly to the conception and implementation of the 1991 Protocol for Environmental Protection of Antarctica, which enforces a number of measures for the preservation of the Antarctic. In your relentless effort to protect the Antarctic and its species, by calling to speak up for Antarctica now, what specific actions are you encouraging global citizens to take? We have a global petition campaign that's been going on for a couple of years to get citizens all over the world to sign their name calling on the governments that control the Antarctic Treaty system to take action to create the MPAs. Get in touch with your decision makers. Every country has environmental ministers and foreign ministers and other senior officials that represent your country at Antarctic Treaty and Camelar meetings. And they need to hear from the public. If they heard more directly from the public, we feel that their governments will, would be more motivated to take the best action to protect Antarctica. Unless founder and director is Giulia Foscari, curator is Federica Zambaletti, researcher is Francesca Genolini. Speakers invited by Unless are Carlo Barbanti, James Barnes, and Alan Hemmings. Please remember to check out Stage at www.stage.tba21.org. Stage's editor-in-chief is Francesca Thiessen Bornemisa. Content curator, Soledad Gutierrez. Curatorial assistant, John Aranguren. Project manager, Nina Speranda. And audio editor, Alvaro Tior. Our theme music is composed by Carl Michael von Hauswolf. I am Madeline Robinson. Thank you for listening. Oh, my God.